The question has always been, is it easier to change behavior or change technology? And drivers for the last hundred years have been fueling their vehicles at a gas station and they're familiar with that model. They're not so adaptable to the grazing type model where you charge your vehicle wherever it's parked. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about plug-in vehicles. Have you driven one lately? And if you want to skip the monologue and go straight to the interview, that begins at the two-minute mark. Electric vehicles have a lot going for them, as today's guests will tell you. They're powerful, efficient, reliable, and cheap to operate. Your pals at Jiffy Lube are going to miss you. But... There are several hang-ups that have kept many of us from making the switch. The biggest might be what they call range anxiety. That's the fear that you'll get out in the middle of nowhere and not have a charging station for your Tesla. Or you'll find yourself on an unexpected road trip to Baton Rouge and there aren't any DC fast charge stations in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Our guest today is building the stakeholders necessary to address those fears and explore some great opportunities. I, for one, think that electric vehicles are the answer to the utility industry's prayers. Here is an opportunity to transition a massive chunk of the energy consumption in this country to the electric industry from the gas industry. And I'm not just talking about the family hatchback. I'm talking about public transportation, emergency responders, company fleets, long-haul trucking, you name it. It's a massive opportunity, and utilities should take the wheel. Our guest today is Lisa Poger, Project Manager for Advanced Energy and lead on their Plug-In NC program. Advanced Energy is based in Raleigh with offices on North Carolina State University's campus. They are a research and consulting firm that also operate renewable and energy efficiency programs. Lisa has been with Advanced Energy since 2011, and it was really great to meet someone who truly believes in the mission they're out to accomplish. If you aren't at least considering a test drive after hearing her make the case, you'll never go electric. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lisa Poger. Here with Lisa Poger, project manager for Advanced Energy. We're talking today about your plug-in NC program, electric vehicles. Let's get very high level with this. Whose responsibility is it to provide infrastructure to support electric vehicles to ensure that there are enough places to charge up? Initially, we had thought that the cities and municipalities' role was to provide that infrastructure. There's been a number of funding opportunities through the Department of Energy to provide subsidies for installing that infrastructure to stimulate the market for electric transportation, and that has been taken on by cities and municipalities to serve the public. Once that initial round of infrastructure was out there, there appeared to be a need for non-public infrastructure that met a business need to really propel the infrastructure market forward. And as the technologies began to develop and different players came into the market, we saw a boom of infrastructure being deployed across workplaces in public settings for 
more residential. And then also the public infrastructure was very important to kind of address the need of range anxiety. The typical charging profile for an electric vehicle driver is probably 80 to 90% of their charging will occur at home where their car is parked most of the time overnight. The workplace and fleet charging plays into that during the day, but the public charging is more of a perception for drivers that they will not be stranded on the road. And that, that's a big issue here, this idea that people are, what you call it, range anxiety. Why do you think people are scared to buy electric vehicles? Mostly I believe that it's a misunderstanding of the technology. There are two groups that people fall into when they're hesitant to move into an electric vehicle. One is that they think the performance is going to be low, like a golf cart kind of experience. And until they get in the car and start driving and feel the performance level is in fact higher than a gasoline vehicle, their perception of the technology is that it won't serve their needs. The other camp is just misinformation about how far the driving ability is and how far people actually drive during the day. The Department of Energy has published information that most drivers drive less than 30 miles a day and all electric battery vehicles can have a range up to at least 75 and they're now going to 300 miles per charge. Do we find that electric vehicle owners get stranded a lot? I know I've run out of gas more times than I'd care to admit, but what's perception versus reality when people actually do buy an electric vehicle? Do we hear a lot of complaints about people saying, I got stranded, my nightmares are coming true here? Yeah, I think it, the first wave of adoption was the early adopters. So they tend to be very tech savvy and they plan out their routes. They're very proud of driving electric vehicles. I think going into a mass market, you're going to have a different kind of focus in terms of paying attention to how far you can go and where the charging stations are. But having said that, the early wave of adoption, we have not heard or seen high numbers of stranding with these vehicles, and that would be all over the news <laughs> if we had. There were some early stories with the battery safety regarding fires, and when those very rare occurrences happened, they were plastered all over the news. Stranding is not something that we have heard complaints about electric vehicle drivers. And again, I think that might be a little biased because of the nature of the early adopters. Are there any complaints that we hear about? For instance, I can think of if I'm going to take a cross-country road trip, is that going to be more difficult? Is there still other workarounds for things like that? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen, again, the early market adoption has been with families that have more than one vehicle. So they tend to have one long-range vehicle or a hybrid plug-in vehicle that can take them on those longer trips. And the electric vehicle is more for around town and commuting back and forth to work. That seems to be the area where it best serves the needs of the drivers. As the battery ranges become longer and charging stations can provide that fueling faster, that gives you the ability to drive cross-country, say in a Tesla, where they have have the supercharging stations strategically located to do the fueling for that. Tell us about what Advanced Energy is doing to help connect the dots. This is your Plug-in NC program, correct? That's right. So Plug-in NC is a collaborative industry collaboration and Advanced Energy provides the platform for industry participants and stakeholders to come together and help plan for the state of North Carolina. We have a number of charging station manufacturers and battery support technologies in the state. So we look at this as an economic development opportunity. Advanced Energy hosts education and outreach events. We have a steering committee that drives development of webinars and online content to help charging station manufacturers get their products into the market and electric vehicle manufacturers to get their products in the market and to highlight the benefits of what that means for our state. And so what improvements or streamlining do you think that you've seen since you started this program? I think the biggest impact we've had through Plug-in NC is connecting the different industries with 
within electric transportation. The utilities and the automakers have not historically needed to work together, and now we provide a platform, at least here in North Carolina, and we leverage a lot of the experiences we have here for other states, specifically the Southeast, and then we've also worked a little bit with California on some of their workplace charging initiatives. But connecting those players in a format that is unbiased and technology neutral just to make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of planning and where we want the state to be in this industry. You talk about it being technology neutral. Are electric vehicles standardized? Is one charger fit all? So electric vehicles are standardized in the sense that they all use the lithium-ion battery technology. The charging interface for the vehicles is standardized for the AC charging. So you can charge any of the electric vehicles on a level two AC charging port. Where it gets complicated is when you go to the faster charging. So what they call the DC direct charge, faster charging, that is more of a gas station model where you can recharge the vehicle in less than 30 minutes. Those standards have not yet combined. There are two standards, one for the manufacturers in the Asia market, so we have the Nissan, then more in the North American market and the European market is the SAE standard. Those two standards are what have been rolled out for fast charging and they have yet to combine on one particular standard for the fast charging. So we're still VHS and Betamax here, right? <laughs> yes, and the thought was that initially when the DC fast charge station started coming out, which was in 2012, they tended more to the Chatamo, which was compatible with the Nissan products, the Nissan Leaf, and the market thought once SAE came up with a standard that would transition over to that. Unfortunately, what we have right now is the beta kind of model with the VCR, and then we have Tesla, which has a proprietary charging port as well. So the charging stations that Tesla has deployed, the superchargers, are not compatible with the Nissan Leaf. They're not compatible with any of the other vehicles in the market, only the Tesla. But the Tesla can charge on those other two standards. And so are you guys working to try to get the word out, okay, this is what's here, this is what's here, you have this product, you can fast charge at these locations, but not this one? Yeah, most of the deployments for DC fast charging have been dual standards, so they will have two cords, mm -hmm. um, one for the Chatamo standard and one for the SAE combo, which the Tesla can charge on those, but it's the Tesla stations that do not allow charging from other vehicle manufacturers. They're Apple. <laughs> They're Yes, Okay. that's a good comparison of that compatibility. In Tesla's deployments, they have been installing level two charging that is available to all vehicles. So with their DC fast charge stations, they will also install level two charging to serve the general public. Interesting. So what do you think ultimately is going to happen? You think people are going to knock on Elon's door and tell him to knock it off? Or how is this going to get reconciled where we have one fast charge? Because fast charge, I think, is what the answer is here. That's the killer app. Yeah, I believe that is what's going to tip the market in terms of the necessary infrastructure to get vehicles into the general market. The question has always been, is it easier to change behavior or change technology? And drivers for the last hundred years have been fueling their vehicles at a gas station and they're familiar with that model. They're not so adaptable to the grazing type model where you charge your vehicle wherever it's parked. The fast charge stations allow drivers to maintain that stop and fill up to the top kind of behavior. I think you're right. I think the DC fast charging will be where the market is comfortable enough with the fueling behavior or pattern that they will become acceptable of that fuel. What I think is very interesting about rolling out a program like Plug-in NC here in a state like North Carolina is this state has a lot of variability here. You've got very rural areas, you've got very large cities, and so that's a really a microcosm of the country. In holding these meetings, what have you learned about the dynamics there? Can plug-ins work both for the rural 
areas as well as the cities? Do we need to focus more on the population centers first? How do you see that playing out where it's going to be electric vehicles from the shore to the mountains? Yeah, I think that it has to evolve naturally. Given where the technology started and the range of the vehicles when they initially came out was about 100 miles. People in the rural setting are not comfortable with using that as a primary vehicle, so it tended to be adopted in the metropolitan areas where the driving is contained within the city. As the battery technology improves, as the range improves, as the speed of charging improves and the infrastructure gets in place across those major thoroughfares, you'll see it spreading out into the rural environments. But it's always best practice to match the technology to the application. Plug-in hybrid electric vehicles are a perfect fit for the rural market. It's just a matter of getting them used to the technology. You talked about fast charge and what you call the grazing model. How quickly can electric vehicle charge up? It would be better for consumers if we could make this more simple in the explanation. The terminology is pretty technical and it would be great to get to the point where we can explain energy in a much simpler language. There are three levels of charging. The first one is on a 120 volt or regular outlet from your house. That can give you five to 10 miles of charge per hour. That sounds really slow. Every time I mention that, people are like, oh, forget it. <laughs> but if you think about how often you drive your car and where your car is parked, your car is parked for more than 12 hours, most days or evenings at your home. And that's a perfect opportunity to recharge up to 100 miles. So unless you're driving more than 100 miles a day, level one could possibly provide all of that for you. And there's no infrastructure upgrade for that. You already have that power availability at your house. Level two is a 240 volt, kind of like a dryer outlet. And that can charge your vehicle up to 20 miles per hour, depending on the onboard charger of the vehicle and the output of the station. But that's kind of the mid-level charge. So if you did drive 100 miles a day, it would take you five hours to recharge that vehicle. The DC fast charge is open source. It depends on how much the charging station can output, but you can charge your vehicle. BMW is coming out with a 300 kilowatt charger, up to 300 kilowatts, and that will charge your vehicle, depending on the battery size, within 15 minutes. That's incredible. Because my question was going to be, I know that the chargers at home are like a dryer. Are there places, say like at parking garages, where they could do like a 480 volt? But it doesn't sound to me like you'd skip that and go directly into your DC direct charge after the 240. There's no discussion about a 480 volt charger, right? No, there's not. And I think the applications for where these stations are installed, we kind of go through a series of questions of how long you're going to park there, how far is it from the location they're driving, and that kind of determines what level of charging you would install in a location. Parking garages are perfect for level two because you're going to be parked there two to four hours, maybe sure. eight hours yeah. if it's a workplace, so you have the opportunity. I think the preference is for people to jump on. The faster, the better, the bigger, the better, but the DC fast charge stations are very expensive, and so if you don't need to have power delivered that fast and you are going to be parked there for a while, we always recommend a lower level of charging. This seems like a really good deal for electric vehicle owners. Don't they get tax rebates for buying an electric vehicle? Is that still? There's a federal tax credit for electric vehicles. Depending on the manufacturer, I think Tesla's going to meet their cap of rebates for their brand probably this year. What does that mean? Where they aren't going to be able to offer rebate or the rebate's going to be less than it was? The way the rebate is set up right now, each manufacturer can sell up to 200,000 vehicles and get the rebate for that vehicle type. Tesla's going to exceed that this year. And also it seems wherever they go for the electric charging stations, aren't those charging stations free, right? It depends. The DC fast charge market has evolved from being provided as a public service to a business model for charging station manufacturers, owners, and operators. So you'll see ChargePoint, you'll see NRG EVgo, and those stations have been deployed strategically in high traffic locations, but 
but you pay a fee for that service when you go to charge. And that is really is built into the amount of power that's delivered, the time it's delivered, if there are any demand charges on providing that power at that time. So they're building all of that into their model and trying to recover the cost of that expensive equipment. Level two charging has been more often free, supplied by either the city or the host site, because the amount of electricity that is delivered from those stations is not nearly the amount from the DC fast charge stations. Why aren't we seeing more charge stations at gas stations? That's a really good question. And we are starting to see EVgo is now installing stations at Sheets across North Carolina. I think that's a great model because you have the conveniences of the... Of convenience the, store. <laughs> convenience store. You can spend 20 minutes there and then your vehicle is charged up. The one downside I've seen as an electric vehicle driver and having used the charging stations there is that I'd like to see more charging stations than one DC fast charge at a gas station. At least have a bank of three so you're not waiting to charge. This would be a slam dunk for gas station people because if I'm a gas station owner, I would think about doing an EV and maybe charging a premium on the electricity just to get those guys in there, especially if they don't have many other options around there. I'm encouraging gouging here, so but <laughs> it just seems like there's a margin for the gas station owners to make money on the electric vehicle yeah, the, sale, right? The equivalent cost is about a dollar per gallon driving distance. And there is also though the capital cost of the equipment trying to recover that and then any ongoing maintenance or operation, which is fairly low because these are just electric distribution stations. There is an opportunity for them to make money in the long run. How much are these charging stations for whoever's buying them? The DC fast charge stations, when they first came out, they were starting in the $40,000 range. There are different models now, and I'm not sure where the price has shifted, but it's likely over $30,000 per station. There may be additional costs in terms of providing that level of power to the station that may be recouped from the utility or it may need to be paid out by the site owner. It varies depending on who your utility provider is and even if they can provide that level of power out to wherever your location is. You announced that Duke is spending about a million dollars to set up their own charging station fleet around the state, but I don't understand this. I don't understand why electric utilities aren't pushing for electric vehicles much harder than it seems they are. For electric utilities where they're having to deal with less consumption, it seems like a way for them to get more electric customers would be to do electric vehicles and maybe offset a little bit of the gas vehicles, right? That would seem like the low-hanging fruit as far as how they could sell more electricity. Yeah, that's a really good question. You hit on a point that we discuss almost every workshop we have. Initially, when vehicle adoption started, utilities did not see that as huge load growth. If you have an electric vehicle, it may increase your utility bill by about 30%. Now you're eliminating your gasoline bill, so in the long run, you're much better off. But from a utility perspective, that is like adding another large piece of equipment at the home. Because the slow rate of adoption for new technologies, I think the utilities were holding off until they saw the tipping point of where they had enough vehicles out there that it really made sense to go after this market. But I think that game is changing. I think utilities are now looking at programs in California. They are trying to deploy their own charging stations from the utility. There's a lot of discussion on that on whether they can recover those costs. But there are so many models in terms of how charging stations get into the ground. Utility owned, business owned, if you have a multifamily, who owns the station. So all of these models are kind of evolving and it's going to be interesting to see 10 years from now who's owning that infrastructure. There's the residential model and trying to encourage more electric vehicles for electric utilities at that. But I would think maybe even the lower hanging fruit might be to work to try to get more fleet vehicles electrified. I've 
noticed in some of the cities that have major natural gas shale plays. I've lived in Pittsburgh. I've done a lot of work over in Oklahoma City where big companies like Chesapeake Energy, the gas producer there, would put all of those city buses and everything on CNG, compressed natural gas. So I'm curious maybe why we don't see a lot of electrified fleet vehicles. And I'm sure we're getting there, don't you think? Absolutely. At the federal level, the general schedules for purchasing now have electric vehicles available. They've been vetted. They don't have to go through a bidding process. As a federal agency, you can go and build your fleet of electric vehicles, and they also have charging station providers on there as well. It's now being pushed out at that level. States are also starting to have on their inventories the ability to include electric vehicles in their fleets. There are a number of cost models on the Department of Energy to look at what the total costs are depending how far you drive and how often you take the vehicle out and how often you need to charge and when you might need to charge. So factoring all of those things in is, again, matching the technology to the application. If you have somebody driving around town riding tickets, not going very far away from a hub, and they come back to the same location every night, that's a great application for electric transportation. At the end of every interview, I'll ask my guests to tell me what they think about other energy sectors. When we get to electric vehicles, if ever there is a negative, it is always not as clean as you think. Coal power may be charging the batteries. I, for one, like coal, but some don't as much. What's your response when people tell you that? I say yes. I get that question a lot, extending the tailpipe. And that is true that the electricity can be provided by a number of generation sources. The Union of Concerned Scientists put out a nice paper on this saying which states were better depending on their power production mix to drive electric. And they now have an app on their website where you can put in your address and it'll tell you what your energy mix is and whether really? or not, yeah, that is a, a good fit for electric transportation if that's your primary purpose is to clean the air. One other caveat to that concern is that in inner cities where the air quality is very bad, if you have a zero emissions vehicle, that really improves the non-attainment zones. Yes. If you have ozone or other air pollutants that you're trying to control in a condensed environment, pushing that generation out of that area for the emissions is a great win for the cities or metropolitan areas. It'd be interesting to know, is the coal plant producing more CO2 or less CO2 than all of the electric vehicles that it could potentially power. Does that make sense? Yeah, even if it's an all coal generation fuel to produce the electricity, studies have shown, and you can find this on the EPA websites and the DOE, that that's still marginally cleaner than burning gasoline in those vehicles. And that's what I figured. And you that's know. for all coal in very few states. That could be a lignite burning, <laughs> the worst of the worst. Right, yeah. the worst case scenario is it's slightly cleaner, but now we have a ton of solar generation coming on and this electric vehicle market is going to help manage those energy peaks and storage needs for solar and as more solar gets deployed that greens the generation up for the electricity and so that comparison from the gasoline burning to the electric vehicle gets even better. I do want to say though that we've held workshops and polled the audience in terms of why would they consider buying an electric vehicle and the results that we found is that the environmental impact is rarely the the tipping point for drivers to purchase an electric vehicle. They are looking at cost savings. The maintenance is nearly zero because you have very few fuels and moving parts other than the wheels. I've had an electric vehicle for four years and we've paid just to get the tires rotated. That's all the maintenance we've had on that vehicle. Is there anything else in some of these work groups that you get? Yeah, two questions I get just driving an electric vehicle myself when people recognize that it's an electric vehicle, they want to talk to me about it. And the two questions I get most often are how far can it go, which we talked about, that is increasing 
monthly, the manufacturer coming out with longer and longer range vehicles. So I think that question is kind of going to resolve itself. The other question is, will my electricity bill go up? And I say, yes, <laughs> your electricity bill will go up, but you will eliminate spending on gasoline. And the nice benefit of driving electric is you don't have to stop at the gas station anymore. It is so nice to drive right by and know that you don't have to pop in there and fill up your tank. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> there was some other technology that I heard about a while ago where they were talking about electric vehicles actually being part of, a, you know how they talk about the battery storage technology and using that to regulate the grid. And I think I heard at one point possibly using the car batteries and electric vehicle feeding back out into the grid. You get some sort of energy credit for that in an effort to maybe stabilize the smart grid. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, there's a lot of research in that area in the vehicle to grid, the vehicle to home for emergencies. If there's a power outage, you can possibly power your home during that outage. There's a lot of pilot studies ongoing, particularly in California. I know one utility company out there is starting a demand response for the charging of the vehicle. So if it's a high peak and they're reaching capacity, they will turn off the ability for the charging station or the vehicle to charge. And then the vehicle owner gets compensated for that. They opt into the program and they get compensated for not charging during those high peak periods. There are so many models of integrating electric vehicles with electric use and managing that load. It's wide open and there's a lot of research going on. It's very exciting. In 2030, what do cars look like? I hope we have very good penetration of passenger vehicles, all electric. I think the automated driving scenarios fit very well with electric and can assist in seamless refueling without participation of the driver. If you can have wireless charging, self-driving vehicles, that really will set the playing field for mass adoption. The last thing we probably need to talk about as far as the benefit of electric vehicle is the torque. There's a lot of power, right? That's what we say, butts and seats. If you can get somebody to drive an electric vehicle, nine times out of 10, they're blown away and say they had no idea. It could be so fun to drive. Gonna finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. So just real quick answer, natural gas. Price too low. I think that that has been really disruptive because of the pricing on that. And I think it's a mistake to count on those prices being low forever. Crude oil. National security, energy independence. Nuclear. Scary but clean. Coal. Antiquated. Wind. Wind is variable, so I think it's hard to capture. But I think with battery technologies, I think it will have a much bigger part to play in the future. Solar. The prices are coming down. I think the future is bright <laughs> for solar. Biofuels. There are some really ingenious biofuels out there. We work with the Clean Cities organization here in Triangle area, and they represent all clean fuels. And it's really interesting to see some of the technology in the manufacturing of those products and the advances that they've come through. Fuel cells. Why aren't they here yet? <laughs> no, I know there are a couple of fuel cell vehicles out there. I was just looking at the numbers this morning that the adoption rate, it's a percentage of the electric vehicle adoption, but the hydrogen cell electric vehicle market is out there. Hydroelectric. Love it. Geothermal. Expensive to install, but I love the idea. Electric vehicles, you guys. No brainer. If we could just make the case that this saves you money, it's good for the environment, it's more fun and the performance is higher, it's hard to tell people good things and have them believe you. And finally, nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion. Most people say it's a long way away, probably. <laughs> Eliminate all of our emissions concerns. It's the way of the future, right? So everyone go out, test drive an electric vehicle. Lisa Poger, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right.
That was Lisa Poger, project manager at Advanced Energy and a lead on the Plug-in NC program, a statewide initiative to expand the adoption of plug-in vehicles. After the interview, Lisa took me out to the charging station and showed me how the different charging setups work. I'll never forget she ended the meeting with, so, when are you getting an electric vehicle? I think I told her I'm within a year of doing the kid thing and want to enjoy my Camaro for as long as the wife will let me keep it. Good to know if I switch to a plug-in four-seater, it'll at least have some torque. You can find pictures and links from this episode on Instagram at Host Energy. We've also set up Facebook and LinkedIn pages for you to connect. You can see all those links at energy-cast.com. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. All guests for this program are sent a copy of the finished product and raw audio before the show is released to ensure that they have been fairly represented. That wraps up episode 13. Please join us next week when we meet some famous frackers. You won't want to miss it. I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.